Uh, if you'd like to follow along in your own Bibles, again, I'll be in Hebrews 6, 13 to 20. In The Pilgrim's Progress, the allegory of the Christian life by John Bunyan, the main character, Christian, and his companion, Hopeful, are captured by a giant named Despair. And Giant Despair keeps them imprisoned. He regularly beats them, and he even encourages them to take their own lives. After enduring this for some time, Christian feels unable to go on. Despair has conquered him. But then he remembers that he has in his possession a key called promise. He uses promise to unlock their cell, and they're able to escape from despair and continue on their journey to the heavenly city. It's a simple scene, but profound. In the Christian life, the fallen condition of the world and our own faint-heartedness can lead us into despair. And despair has a tendency to grow in strength. The image of the giant despair beating Christian is really what it feels like to be in despair. It can seem impossibly powerful. It continually weakens you. It saps your strength and removes your ability to fight back. It can even call into question whether life is worth enduring at all. And we probably all know what it's like to be beaten down under the weight of our own despair. I know that I do. And while John Bunyan was writing in the 1600s, I think this image of despair is more relevant now than ever. Our culture seems to be facing an epidemic of despair. In the United States, people are lonely, depressed, and suicidal in record numbers. On both sides of the political aisle, forecasts of doom and destruction are the preferred method of garnering support. In my own generation, I have noticed a tendency toward a nihilistic sense of humor. Jokes about the apparent pointlessness of life are extremely common, and I don't think they're just jokes. They hint at the despair that simmers just beneath the surface of our culture. But just as the imagery of despair as a giant is insightful, so too there is a lot to learn from Bunyan's solution. The key that unlocks the prison of despair, the means of our escape, is promise. Specifically, God's promise. In a world of constant change and instability, the only sure hope is God's unchangeable promise. That brings me to the main point of our passage this morning, which is that true hope rests on the unchangeable promises of God fulfilled in Christ. True hope rests on the unchangeable promises of God fulfilled in Christ. God knows that we are buffeted in this world by despair and instability. So he provides us the opposite, hope. Hope that is based on the unchangeability of his promise. As we look more closely at this passage to see how God's unchanging nature and our hope are related, I think it's helpful to structure the passage with three simple points. The promise, the oath, and the purpose of both. The promise in verses 13 to 16, the oath in verse 17, and the purpose of both in verses 18 to 20. Before we get into our main points, though, I want to give some context for our passage. In the book of Hebrews, the author is encouraging believers to endure hardship and continue on in the Christian life because Jesus is the eternal Son of God 
and the fully human ruling king of the universe. Chapters 5 through 7 of Hebrews specifically are concerned with Melchizedek, the priest king who met Abraham in Genesis 14. And the author is making the point that Jesus Christ is the true and eternal priest king. At the beginning of chapter 6, our chapter today, the author took a break to warn his audience, but now he's turning his attention back to Melchizedek. So with that in mind, let's read verses 13 to 16 once again, the promise. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So God made a promise to Abraham. The passage referenced here is Genesis 22, 17 through 18. And in Genesis 22, God restates the blessings of the covenant he's made with Abraham, promising to multiply his descendants or his offspring or his seed. What's interesting about Genesis 22, though, is that the promises about Abraham's offspring or seed go back and forth between singular and plural. First, God promises that he will multiply Abraham's offspring. So the promise has many offspring in mind if Abraham is being multiplied. But then God says about that offspring in verse 18, he will possess the gate of their enemies. Now, to possess the gate is an image of conquering and reigning as king. So the promise has one particular offspring in mind who will possess the gate. But it is the gate that belonged to the enemies of the many offspring. So what's going on in this passage? Is the promise singular or plural? Well, the Apostle Paul helps us with this in Romans 9, 5, Galatians 3.16 and Galatians 3.29. In Romans 9.5, he says, To the Israelites belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This is saying that God multiplied the physical descendants of Abraham in order to bring through Jesus, the Messiah, into the world. So the many offsprings give way to the one offspring. This is what God had in mind all along, as Paul says in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So we have the many, and we have the one. But then the promise becomes about the many once again in Galatians 3.29, when Paul says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So Christ is the one true offspring of Abraham, but all who believe in Christ become the true offspring of Abraham in him. So the promise goes from the many physical descendants of Abraham to the one descendant, Jesus Christ, and then back to the many descendants of Abraham who are in Christ. You can think of it like an hourglass shape. The promise starts wide with the physical descendants of Abraham. It narrows in the middle with the one Christ, and it expands out again with those who are in Christ. That is the content of the promise that God made to Abraham. It is both singular and plural. 
Now Abraham did not live to see his descendants after Isaac, but he did patiently wait for Isaac and received him as the beginning of the fulfillment of these promises. He received Isaac essentially as a down payment that the Christ would come. But just as important as the content of the promise is the manner in which God makes it. In verse 13, it says, God swore by himself. And verse 16 explains why that is. People swear by something greater than themselves, or at least something they perceive to be greater than themselves. So in ancient cultures, people would swear on the name of the gods that they believed in, or the name of a great city, or features of nature like a tree or a mountain, or even celestial bodies like the moon or stars. But when God makes a promise, there is no one for him to appeal to. There is nothing and no one greater than God. So there's nothing that can add trustworthiness to his promise. There's nothing that confers authority on God's word that it does not already have. God's authority and trustworthiness need no endorsement. God does not have to swear by something in nature to show that he's serious. He need only swear by himself, by his own name. And that brings us to our second point, the oath. So let's read verse 17 again. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. This verse tells us that God swore an oath to confirm the promise. That raises three questions. What is the oath? Who is it for? And why was it given? What is the oath? Who is it for? And why was it given? There are two possibilities for what the oath is. And while neither option really changes the overall meaning of the text, I will explain both. The first possibility is that the oath is the first part of God's statement in verse 14 when he says, surely I will bless. You could argue that the surely there makes it an oath. And this possibility is supported by the fact that God's act of speaking in verse 13 is described as swearing. It says God swore by himself. However, verse 18 makes much of the fact that the promise and the oath are two different things. As it says, two unchangeable things. So it seems like the promise and the oath need to be more distinct. So there's a second possibility. It is possible that the oath is implied and that it is Psalm 110 verse 4, which we read earlier, which says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this, of course, is God the Father speaking to God the Son. Now, that might seem a little bit odd, but let's consider the evidence. Firstly, we need to remember the context of our passage. Hebrews 5 through 7 is all about Melchizedek. In fact, Melchizedek is mentioned in Hebrews 5, 6, 5, 10, 6, 20, which is our passage, 7, 1 through 10, 7, 17, and 7, 21. So Melchizedek is all over this passage. And the author is especially concerned with Psalm 110.4. He explicitly quotes it in Hebrews 5.6, and 7.21. Additionally, Psalm 110.4 is very clearly an oath. The first part of the verse says the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. 
So it seems to me that the author is implying that Psalm 110.4 is the oath that confirms the promise he gave to Abraham. So God made the initial promise to Abraham in Genesis 22 and then confirms it with an oath in Psalm 110. But who is the oath for? Verse 17 says that the oath was made to show God's unchangeable purpose to the heirs of the promise. The oath is for the heirs of the promise. Now, heirs of the promise is not a common phrase in the Bible, but there is a very similar phrase in Galatians 3.29, which we looked at earlier. It says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. It seems to me that the heirs of the promise and the heirs according to promise are the same group, namely those who are in Christ, who have believed in him. And I think this is shown even more clearly in verse 18, which says, so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. So the author identifies Christians with the heirs of the promise. So the oath is for those who live long after Abraham, but are still trusting in the very same unchangeable promise. This brings us to our third question and our third point. Why was the oath given? The purpose of the promise and the oath. Let's read verses 18 through 20 again. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I ask the question, why was the oath given? Because it seems a little odd to follow up a promise if the promise was really trustworthy. If someone repeats a promise too much, it can actually begin to undermine their appearance of trustworthiness. Think about it this way. If I promise to do something for you, but before I do it, I just continually say, I'm going to do it, I promise. Really, I'll do it. No, really, trust me, I'll do it. Believe me, I'll do it. I'll do it. Trust me. You might begin to wonder if I'm really trustworthy at all. It may begin to seem as if I'm just buying time that I'm trying to distract you from the fact that I actually have no intention or ability to keep my promise. But that, of course, is not why God gave the oath in addition to the promise. God did not confirm his promise with an oath because of any shortcoming in him, but because of the shortcomings of his people. He knows that we are faint-hearted. He knows that we are prone to doubt. He knows that we will forget his promises or that we will be too distracted by the cares of the world to heed them. So he guarantees his promise with an oath. It's a blessing for our assurance. He so wants us to trust in his promises that he is willing to publicly double down on it. He reminds us of the promise and assures us that he really is keeping it. It makes me think of Psalm 103, 14, when the psalmist says, For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. 
God knows our weakness, and he is not put off by it. On the contrary, he cares for us enough to assure our doubting hearts, and he does it by confirming his promise with an oath. God's purpose in giving us the promise and confirming it with an oath is to encourage us to hold fast to the hope set before us. In the promise of the gospel, which he confirmed with an oath and fulfilled in Jesus Christ, we have hope. The promise of hope in the gospel is the key that unlocks our prisons of despair to call back to Pilgrim's Progress. When we are beaten down by despair, whether it's because of our sin or because of the fallen state of the world, a world that seems to be constantly changing and rarely for the better, the sure promise of the gospel gives us the hope to endure. Verse 19 describes our hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. It's a simple picture, but consider with me what an anchor does. It keeps a boat where it's meant to be. Without an anchor, winds and waves and currents take the boat far from where it should be. It is the same with our souls. If we don't have a proper anchor, if we don't have the life-giving, pain-enduring hope of the gospel, we will drift away. We will drift into despair. In fact, the greatest threat in not having an anchor is that we may drift away so slowly that we don't even realize that we're drifting. It may not be until we're far from shore with a storm on the horizon that we begin to realize the danger that we're in. This is why we need to hold fast to the hope of the gospel. If we let go, we have no anchor for our souls. And there is no key of promise for our prison cell. The antidote to our culture of despair is the assurance that God has in fact kept his promise by redeeming us through Jesus Christ. Just listen to the first verse of the hymn, Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor, which was inspired by this very verse. Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor, in the fury of the storm, when the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn, in the suffering, in the sorrow, when my sinking hopes are few, I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. But the passage goes on. It goes on to say that our hope is a hope that goes into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. This is a reference to the tabernacle and temple structures of the Old Testament. In these structures, there were certain sections that were inaccessible to everyone except the high priest because God was specially present there and an unholy people could not be in the presence of a holy God. So this passage is saying something extraordinary. It is saying that because Jesus is our high priest and he has entered into God's presence, he is our forerunner. And if he is running before us, it is obviously implied that we are running after him meaning that because Jesus has entered into the presence of God, he is bringing us into the presence of God too. 
Jesus is giving us access to God through his sacrifice. The ascension of Jesus to the Father is the guarantee that we will be in the presence of the Father as well. Where he is, there we will be also. Jesus as our high priest will bring to pass what is said in Revelation 21.3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The passage also says that Jesus has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the fulfillment of the oath that God gave in Psalm 110.4. And it's important that we understand what is meant by Jesus being a priest in the order of Melchizedek as opposed to any other kind of priest. In the Old Testament law, only members of the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron could be priests. But before the law was ever given, we had Melchizedek in Genesis 14, who was a priest and a king. And Melchizedek was not a Levite. In fact, he lived several generations before Levi was even born. And he was not even related to Abraham. He was a Gentile. The point is that while the priesthood of the Levites existed for the time of the law, there is a priesthood that began long before the law and will exist forever in Jesus Christ. Jesus is not a priest of the Old Covenant because he's not a Levite. He is from the tribe of Judah and is a priest in the eternal priestly order because he mediates the eternal covenant, the new covenant in which we are saved. He is the mediator of a superior covenant, so his priesthood is superior. As Hebrews 8.6 says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Christ is the perfect high priest who offered the perfect sacrifice for sin by offering himself. His death on the cross paid the penalty for sin and satisfied the demands of God's law. Because he shed his blood, all who believe in him will be saved. He was raised to life and he now reigns over all things at the right hand of the Father. If you already believe that, if you are a Christian this morning, I encourage you to spend some time reflecting on that and savoring the perfection of Jesus, our high priest. But not only did he offer himself for us in the once for all sacrifice, but he now intercedes for us. He is eternally our advocate with the Father. This is not because the Father is forgetful. It's not because he needs reminding of what Christ has done. It's because we need assurance. Take solace in the hope that Christ is your eternal priest, your eternal advocate, your eternal life. If you do not believe the gospel, I would urge you to reconsider this morning. The hope that Jesus offers is the only true anchor of the soul. It is the only true source of hope. It is the only true escape from despair. My only application for you would be to believe in Jesus. Come to him.
No one who came to him was ever cast out, and no one ever will be. But for you who are believers, brothers and sisters, I invite you to ask this question with me. How should we live in light of these things? Firstly, remind yourself of key gospel truths. God cannot change and neither can his word. I want to draw your attention to the fact that several times in this passage, the author uses the word not unchanging, but unchangeable. It is not merely as if God has not changed so far, but it's a distinct possibility for the future. It's that God cannot change. God's word cannot change. His promise cannot be broken. It's not even a possibility. God is faithful to keep his promises in Christ Jesus. Reflect on the fact that Jesus is our perfect high priest who is ever interceding for us. We are immensely forgetful people. But we hold fast to the hope set before us precisely by being reminded of our hope. Like Psalm 94, 19 says, When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Relatedly, remind other Christians of these truths. Hearing gospel truth from others is sometimes easier to believe than when we hear it from ourselves. We need to encourage one another along the way so that we are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin or left alone in our despair. As the pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, Therefore Christians need other Christians who will speak God's word to them. They need them again and again when they become uncertain and disheartened. Because living by their own resources, they cannot help themselves without cheating themselves out of the truth. They need other Christians as bearers and proclaimers of the divine word of salvation. They need them solely for the sake of Jesus Christ. The Christ in one's own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of another Christian. Remind one another of these truths. Secondly, speak as people with hope. The hope that we have should show itself in how we speak to one another. Our fates are not at the mercy of earthly circumstances, so we should not speak like they are. No change in circumstances, whether personal or relational or financial, political or anything else, can even touch the hope that we have in Christ. Do not participate in the gloomy pessimism of our culture, but instead hold fast to and hold out the hope we have in Jesus. Thirdly, cultivate patient endurance. The author of Hebrews encourages us to hold fast. And he points us to the example of Abraham who obtained the promise only after he had patiently waited for many, many years. We have a hope that is sure and certain. But that doesn't mean that we don't need to endure in this life. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. 
Fourthly, we need to have hope-shaped priorities. Our hope is not of this world, so our priorities should reflect that. We should reject worldly standards of success and instead evaluate success on the same basis that God does, on faithfulness and a longing for the new creation. Hope-shaped priorities value evangelism over comfort, discipling relationships over career-advancing connections, and seeking first the kingdom of God over seeking the kingdoms of the world. And finally, this last one is a little more abstract, but bear with me. Do not fear death. We can face death with hope because for the Christian, death is merely the entryway into the inner place. It is our gateway into the presence of God and our great high priest, Jesus Christ. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said just before he was martyred, this is the end, but for me, the beginning of life. Brothers and sisters, dwell on these things. The Father loves you, the Son is your high priest, and the Spirit dwells in you. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you cannot change. And that because you cannot change, neither can your word or your promise. Lord, we are constantly buffeted by change and uncertainty and despair. Would you hold us fast to the sure and steady hope that we have in Jesus Christ? We thank you that the eternal Son of God became one of us, that he would live a perfect life that we could never live, that he died the death that we deserved, and that he was raised for our justification, and that because he reigns at your right hand, so too we will be called to your right hand, that we will dwell with you forever. Hold us fast with this hope. In Jesus' name. Amen.